This is the Monday, September 11, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis. And this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. This week, our time machine travels back to 1840 for a belt of hard cider courtesy of a presidential candidate, William Henry Harrison. A hero of the Battle of Tippecanoe in the War of 1812, he earned the nickname Old Tippecanoe and served in a variety of public offices before winning the Whig nomination and making a bid for the presidency with Virginia Democrat John Tyler, due to having the unfortunate distinction of the shortest presidency in American history, Harrison is little remembered today, but his campaign is memorable, and so is its slogan, Tippecanoe and Tyler too. That slogan lives on in the 21st century, which is incredible when you think there are no recordings, no video, only the written word. Today, We expect the atmosphere of a Coney Island summer to surround our campaigns. We demand style and charisma from our candidates. We want somebody exciting. We even poll on which candidates voters would prefer to sit down and share a beer with. 1840 is where that all began. The big money, the wild rallies, the self-promotion, and yes, even the booze. Pulitzer Prize-nominated reporter Ronald G. Schaefer tells this colorful story in his book, The Carnival Campaign, how the rollicking 1840 campaign of Tippecanoe and Tyler II changed presidential elections forever. Check out the book and our guest online at carnivalcampaign.com or follow Ron Schaefer and the Digit One on Twitter. Ronald G. Schaefer was an editor, reporter, and columnist at the Wall Street Journal for 38 years making his home base in Chicago, Detroit, and the nation's capital, where he was the political features editor. In 1990, he was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize for Journalism. He has also contributed to People Magazine, Sports Illustrated, Reader's Digest, and The Washington Post. His previous books include When the Dodgers Were Bridegrooms. Schaefer is now a freelance writer and lives in Williamsburg, Virginia. Okay, now that we've cast our ballots, Let's meet Ron Schaefer and join the Carnival Campaign. I'm joined on the line by Ronald G. Schaefer, author of The Carnival Campaign, How the Rollicking 1840 Campaign of Tippecanoe and Tyler II Changed Presidential Elections Forever. Thank you for making the time to chat with the History Author Show. It's great to be here. Ron, after 175 years, Tippecanoe and Tyler II remains one of the most memorable campaign slogans ever. It's probably most memorable, the best, except maybe 
challenges I like Ike for the first place spot. You quote Wig Philip Hone saying of the slogan, there was rhyme but no reason to it. How is the strategy of deploying a slogan part of this revolution you describe in the carnival campaign? This was uh, pretty typical of what happened during the campaign. A lot of things just happened. Nobody planned it. <laughs> in this case, the Whigs had their first big rally uh, in Columbus, Ohio, on George Washington's birthday in 1840. And one of the features of the big parade was this big rolling ball, about 10 feet high with slogans on it that could be rolled from town to town. This was the start of the phrase, keep the ball rolling. In this big crowd was this uh, young jeweler from the nearby town of Zanesville, and he got so excited by this big ball that he went home and he wrote a song for his Tippecanoe Glee Club, which they had all over the country. <laughs> the chorus of the song was Tippecanoe and Tyler too. It was really about this big ball, but the chorus is what really caught on and became, I think, the most famous slogan in history. I mean, I like Ike is fine, but I think... Tippecanoe and Tyler, too, it just rolls off the tongue. And the reason that Hone said that it had rhyme but no reason was that it turned out that Tyler really wasn't a Whig yeah. and that he really was not going to follow the policy of the Whig if he ever became president. So those are the two definitions of that slogan. What you said about I Like Ike makes me realize that that's within living memory the Eisenhower campaign. So I guess talk to us in a hundred years and see, or more than a hundred years and see if that's still on people's mind and still a go-to slogan. Once the war and once history fades away from the Eisenhower campaign, that's one that we know because our grandparents knew it and we still see him. We have video of him, but this is from an era well before all of that. And yet it still sticks in our mind as this watershed campaign by 1840, America has had about 10 contested presidential elections behind it, starting with that knockdown drag out between Adams and Jefferson in 1800. What were those campaigns like before this break you describe in the Carnival campaign? Well, typically in the campaign that, uh, before this, there were two things. First of all, the, uh, the candidates didn't campaign. This was considered to be totally improper and very uh, arrogant to go out and brag about yourself. So they basically uh, stayed home and they answered letters from voters uh, about various issues. And when it came to a meeting about candidates during the campaign, usually these were small meetings in communities around the country at the local community house. For the most part, there were no big parades, nothing like we have later come to see. What made you want to write about 1840? Well, you know, I was I was the political features editor in Washington and People always said, well, the first modern campaign was the 1840 campaign. I said, oh, yeah, why? Well, I'm not really sure. <laughs> so when I retired, I started looking it up, and I'd seen that the last book written it was like 50 years ago, and it was kind of an academic book. So I said, you know, this could be kind of – and, of course, I, I moved to Williamsburg, and I went to Berkeley Plantation. And, and when I did the book, I got a private tour of John Tyler's retirement house at Sherwood Forest by his great-grandson. Hmm. His grandson still owns the house. Yeah. It was sort of the combination of uh, my political background and moving to Williamsburg that kind of finally got me to finally do it. Two of his grandsons are alive still, Tyler's. Yeah. People always find fascinating. Definitely. The fellow who owns the one here is in his 80s, and he's moved into Richmond. But still, amazing. I mean, Tyler was born in 1790. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> he got around. <laughs> 
He had 15 children. Yeah. So, uh, and that's another interesting part of the book that I didn't know about. Tyler married this woman 30 years younger than him yeah. and had seven more kids. <laughs> you mentioned about the slogan just happening and a lot of these things just happening. And it makes me think of today where we have so many consultants and strategists, which is a favorite Chiron on cable news. It could be somebody who was an intern getting coffee and in order to give them a little bit of gravitas and some kind of resume to put them on TV, they'll call them a strategist. And yet in this campaign, not only is it combined with being a backlash to the Jackson years, you know, you had two terms of Jackson, then his vice president, Martin Van Buren gets in, also, there was this economic depression, this panic. And so everything fits in there. Everything builds like that ball rolling downhill and just gets bigger and bigger when you're pitting Martin Van Buren against this governor and war hero from what I guess people would think of as a better time. War of 1812 was not a great war for the United States in the actual fighting, but the spin afterwards was excellent. So I think people started thinking of him. He was a big hero in that war. As you say in the Carnival campaign, bigger than Jackson in that war. Van Buren was the political animal, though, from his earliest days in New York State, whereas Harrison, he's out of public life. He's the oldest man to seek the presidency until Ronald Reagan. So how did it come to be that the Harrison-Tyler ticket is the one to make all these innovations and this policy wonk, this guy who's a political seasoned strategist, Van Buren, really has no answer for it? You know, again, it just kind of happened. The Harrison, as you said, was the oldest man ever nominated for president. He was 67 years old at the time. After the Panic of 1837, in which Van Buren was a uh, a small government man, so he did not believe uh, in any federal help uh, for the people. And in fact, he said uh, they should just go about their business and uh, take care of themselves, which did not go over well with a lot of the public. So the Whigs decided that they would nominate a war hero. They eventually picked uh, Harrison, who was back in Ohio. He was not at their convention because, again, this was not considered to be proper. Although he, he didn't want the job, <laughs> you sort of had to pretend you weren't running for president in those days. Mm. So he got the nomination, and so their plan was to make him like Andrew Jackson. They would run him as a hero of the War of 1812. But then once again, something happened. Less than a week after the convention, an opposition newspaper ran an article saying that Harrison was this senile old man, and if you gave him a pension and some hard cider, he'd be content to just go stay in his log cabin. So the Whigs didn't know what to do. So two strategists that you might call from those days, one was a rich banker in Harrisburg and a young uh, newspaper editor there, uh, they got together at the banker's mansion to talk about what to do about this. But they noted that even though this was very upsetting, a lot of the Whig papers had come back and said, hey, wait a minute, you know, the log cabin is a symbol of America's beginning, and the hard cider is the drink of the common man. And they said, you know, this is not a bad idea. Yeah. So they went with the first image campaign of Harrison as a poor man living in his log cabin and drinking hard cider and became the log cabin and hard cider campaign, all because of an opposition newspaper. So this is what happened in many times during the campaign when the Democrats under Van Buren would attack Harrison, it would just go against uh, the Democrats, it would just slam back against him. So it was a very fascinating campaign. 
And spoiler alert, Harrison didn't live in a log cabin. He wasn't a poor guy. But as you said, it was the image. In fact, you have right here on the cover of the Carnival Campaign, the political cartoon that's the lower third of the book is a log cabin is in it. It's featuring a big carnival atmosphere that you're describing. And there it is, a log cabin and the roof on it has a big sign that says Tippecanoe and Tyler too. So they embrace that. And as somebody who has read about Van Buren, that's the sort of thing that makes me think, that he had no answer for that just shows this ball rolling and how innovative it was because he was a guy who did that many times in his career. In fact, his faction up in New York State, they called them the Bucktails, which was an insult saying, well, they're running away, right? Showing the white flag, the tail of the deer running away. And he adopted it. He said, we're going to run on that. We're going to call our faction that. We're going to embrace that name. Seems a little bit like a connection here. And then somebody gets that idea independently and uses it so well as a bludgeon to kick him out of the White House. Yeah, the irony is that Van Buren actually created sort of these like parades. When he ran uh, Andrew Jackson's campaign, they had torchlight parades, a few, and they had uh, hickory poles for old hickory, you know. But the Whigs took this and ran with it. Matter of fact, the Democrats said they have stolen our ideas, uh, and they had these monster parades. I'm impressed with like 50, 60,000 people with music and dancing wow. and the world's tallest man. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and they even, even had the old Harrison polls and the towns competed to see who could have the biggest one. And finally Wheeling, Virginia at that time put up one over 200 feet high. And even the Democrats said, you know, that may be stuff like we did, but they have created a whole new kind of campaign and taken a whole new idea. So when I, I, found in my research that the Democrats were saying nothing like this had happened before, that I was on pretty solid ground saying this was a totally new and innovative type of campaign. We talk about the image here, and the favorite wonk term of the moment is optics. But in this campaign, we see it's this fight between Van, you know, Van Buren, uh, we'll call him Van occasionally, but Martin Van Buren, who is portrayed as this stodgy guy, doesn't care. Partly that's people's reaction to that politics that you talked about, but he is not that kind of man. He grows up over a saloon. He really does care about politics, cares about the country, gives his life to the work of politics. If your candidate has those optics working in your favor, you're happy. If he's sweating like Nixon or has a terrible photo op like Dukakis in the tank, you lament voters don't care about the facts. Why don't they care more about the facts? That's a position that Andrew Jackson is in. He isn't going to run again for the presidency. He's respecting the two-term limitation, which is not in the Constitution yet. How did that idea of focusing on the style over the substance that you talk about getting its start in the carnival campaign drive Andrew Jackson a little bit crazy? I mean, I know it wasn't a very far ride for Jackson, but what did he think of Harrison? Well, Jackson and, and Harrison were rivals going back to the War of 1812. It got worse after the War of 1812. They, they both were famous because they were war heroes from the War of 1812. And at that time, the Battle of New Orleans and the Battle in Canada where, of the Thames, where Harrison won, were pretty equally famous. Now, today, nobody's ever heard of the Battle of the Thames. So they both got into politics. And, of course, that's what you do, right? Harrison goes into Congress, the House, and one of the first things that comes up is that they want to censor Jackson because when he was in Florida, he hung some British traitors for treason. And they end up not doing it, but Harrison votes for one of the cases. 
And Jackson, as you know, was not a type to forgive or forget. <laughs> uh, he was a man who had killed people in duels. So anyway, they go on their way, and eventually Harrison is out of politics. He's back at his farm in North Bend, Ohio, where he figures he's going to stay the rest of his days. Uh, Jackson, of course, becomes president of the United States. This happens just when Harrison did finally get back into the U.S. Senate. But he really was trying to get a job as the ambassador to Columbia, which paid a lot of money. And he finally got it. And it took him almost a year to get there. And he was there four days. And Jackson comes into office. And what does he do? First thing, <laughs> he fires Harrison. <laughs> so, so Harrison is back in Ohio. Then during the campaign, Jackson says he never admired Harrison as a military man. He hates these big campaigns of what he calls... They all had raccoons in these log cabins on wheels. He called it a, a parade of coons and big balls. <laughs> and he actually went out and campaigned, even though he, he never campaigned for himself because he considered that really improper. He went out and campaigned uh, against Harrison in Tennessee, he was even kissing babies, if you can imagine. Although it didn't work, Harrison won Tennessee in the end. They were never friends. It's also worth pointing out here about Harrison that Harrison came from that aristocrat background, certainly compared to Jackson, who grows up an orphan and has that really tough, hard scrabble life, wears that scar on his face from where the British soldier slashes him for refusing to polish his boots when he's about 15. Harrison's father, wasn't it, that signed the Declaration of Independence? So that's another source, not only of the animosity with Jackson, but also of people looking at him and saying, hey, we know that name, we know that family, and so let's give this guy a chance. Yeah, that was another irony of this campaign, what we call in the trait a delicious irony, <laughs> with Van Buren also. As you, as you mentioned, Van Buren grew up this common man, this uh, Dutch immigrant family. Harrison, who was running as the poor man living in a log cabin, actually grew up on a plantation in Virginia, the Berkeley Plantation. His father, Benjamin Harrison V, was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. When Harrison was growing up, people come over to dinner were like Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and James Madison. He goes to college. At a time, few could go to college. He did go have to find work when his father died when he was 18 years old, but he had these great job references. The founding fathers of the country were his references. <laughs> he joined the Army with the officer's commission from President George Washington, he was named the governor of the Indiana Territory, a huge job. And then John Adams lost to Thomas Jefferson, but Jefferson was another old family friend. So he made the Louisiana Purchase and added all that to Harrison's territory. And then in the War of 1812, Madison, another old friend, appoints him a general. So it goes on and on and on. So that finally, even though he's running as this poor man, he lives as his mansion in Ohio, People don't mind. You know, they just want to change. The facts didn't matter. The Whigs promised to make America great again. They called it Harrison and Reform. It wasn't quite as catchy, but it worked really well. And there's Jackson sitting around in the War of 1812 as it's raging, just dying to get into the fight, sort of like George Patton. If people have seen the movie of, in World War II. He's saying, it's the greatest fight, and I'm sitting on the sideline watching it. <laughs> it's because of a similar problem about them that people above them knew that they were what we call loose cannons. So th that yeah. was the thing about both of them. It's funny to think of Jackson there, who wasn't used to being put on a shelf, 
throughout this whole thing, both in the War of 1812, but then in this 1840 carnival campaign, sitting there watching this guy who he has no respect for, who annoys him, nobody as great as he, Jackson, is, and yet people are rolling giant balls in town and putting up poles, and he's so frustrated by it that he goes and campaigns. There's so much energy to it. It's not like that 1800 campaign I mentioned where you see these two men that we want to admire, Jefferson and Adams. We want to kind of fast forward to when they're older men and they have that reconciliation. Right. This campaign is, there's so much fun stuff, so much fun stuff in the book that you get that feeling of, this is not just your usual stodgy campaign. You write in the carnival campaign, one of these lines that did make me chuckle, quote, Journalists covering the event were at a loss for words to tell readers what they had witnessed, unquote. How does this bewilderment, that sense of awe and shock and surprise, alter how those journalists of the 1840 Carnival campaign cover this race as opposed to previous races for the White House when there was all that letter writing and there wasn't all these spontaneous events? Yeah, it was a real challenge at first, and and it was amazing, and and reading the accounts of some of these uh, gigantic parades that the reporters uh, stated flat out that I, I don't know how to describe this, you know. <laughs> but fortunately for me, they did go on to describe these uh, big parades in great detail. Usually there were a bunch of log cabins on wheels. I mean, sometimes these would be so big they'd have 50 men in them, five or six horses pulling them. And they'd have live eagles on posts uh, going through town. And, and, of course, the big ball that we talked about. Of course, the other thing was the Whigs were very smart. They provided lots of free hard cider so that the crowd usually was in a pretty good mood by the time the parade got going, you know. Yeah. <laughs> to me, one of the most amazing things I didn't know going in was this was the first campaign involving women. And they couldn't vote, of course, but also traditionally, they were, they, it was considered unladylike to even be involved, be anywhere near uh, any of these campaigns. But the Whigs recruited them to come to these parades, and uh, they waved handkerchiefs from the side. In fact, the Whigs even handed out some of the handkerchiefs so they would do it. There weren't TV cameras in those days, but there were reporters, as we mentioned, and this was something they sh were sure to mention in their articles as the campaign went on. And women became more and more involved. Some of them even gave speeches. This was totally shocking to to everybody at, at the time, especially in Baltimore, where one woman she didn't wave a handkerchief; uh, she she waved a red petticoat out of a window. So this was uh, <laughs> this was a lot uh, for reporters to cover. But as a former reporter, I can tell you that this is the kind of stuff you love. Yeah, it's more exciting than just going and covering the usual speech and the thing that's put out and the candidate that never does anything new. Because when you're following them from town to town, especially in those days where the pool was nothing like today, wasn't as much as everybody complains if you've ever gone and been put on, which I, I know you have, but the listeners, they'll go put on there, listen to them give the same speech. Often the candidates are boring. They've given it a million times. They're not going to talk to you afterwards. There's that separation. But here, you didn't know what you were going to find. And then to to see women on the stump, American women would have to wait 80 years, as you said, to get that right to vote. And yet some of the people that you have showing up in the book 
cameos are Susan B. Anthony and Victoria Woodhull. So this is not just women who, I assume this woman is nameless, who is waving her petticoat out the window, (laughs) forgotten to history, except for her bold statement in support of the general. But that role is different. It's really a break for a century or half a century of American democracy. It gets that ball rolling for women to say, you know, we can do more than maybe just sit at home and quietly mention it to our husband, if they even did that. This really gets them to be on that road from the carnival campaign to their eventual suffrage in 1920. No doubt about it. Many of the women who eventually fought for women vote credit this campaign. One of the women who was involved in this campaign and wrote editorials was Amelia Bloomer, who became famous for the Bloomers uh, when she later wrote a fashion magazine. But she also led the, the fight for women's vote. And they were very strong about this. Uh, one of my favorite quotes uh, from the book was uh, a woman in Springfield, Illinois, at a rally, and the horses stampeded and threatened. It was pretty dangerous. And she cried out, uh, if any are to be killed, let it be the ladies, for they can't vote. <laughs> wow. So they felt pretty strongly about this. Wow. There's a lot of those things to laugh about when reading the carnival campaign. Look at the cover of the book if you think you might want to get it and look at that cartoon there with all the things you're describing in it and think if that's not something you wouldn't like to go. If you were in 1840, that's a pretty exciting thing, especially in a time when you don't have TV, you don't have all your private, personal devices. There's no mass stadiums for sporting events. This would have felt like that if you put yourself in those shoes. That's how you would feel. John Quincy Adams talks about another part of that cartoon, or he could be talking about it. There's a man in the background there who's giving a speech. He's up on a platform held up by what looked like barrels of hard cider or maybe barrels of beer casks. Quincy said, this practice of itinerant speech making has suddenly broken out all over the country to a fearful extent. And I know that he wasn't intending that to be funny, but it makes you laugh when you think, here's another thing we just take for granted. You send surrogates out, people go out, people who like you will give speeches. Today they'll post whatever they think on YouTube for better or for worse. What was the reaction of the sixth president and son of the second to the way politics changed in this race for his old office? Well, Adams did not like this at all. Adams is great for researchers because he kept a diary. Yeah. And he was very sarcastic. (laughs) So he kind of fed some of this in a way. He he wrote it in his diary, but he probably said it himself. Uh, You know, when Van Buren was growing up, his parents had this tavern on this road from through New York into New York City, which was the capital of the country at the time. And people like Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton stopped at this tavern and boarding house. And so later on during this campaign, Adams speculated that Van Buren might be the illegitimate son of Aaron Burr. (laughs) There's no evidence to even suggest that, but it would make a great opposition ad, I guess. Which would have been a big insult at the time because... Burr was synonymous. <laughs> well, exactly. At that at that time, but we all know what happened to Burr by that time, uh, yeah. even before the musical Hamilton. Yeah. But the speaking, uh, Harrison had uh, his circuit speakers were people like Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> I mean, you can't imagine. But probably the biggest change forever in this campaign was the first time a presidential candidate ever spoke. It was the result of this letter writing. Harrison had answered a letter to a fellow in New York, and he said the letter actually didn't come from Harrison. It came from his campaign committee. 
And the Democrats said this was just shocking that they didn't even trust the old guy to answer his own mail. And they said they kept him in an iron cage and they called him General Mum. <laughs> Harrison was a very proud man and he couldn't stand this. So he got an invitation to go up to speak near Toledo at Fort Meigs, one of his old 1812 war sites. And he accepted. And it was a two-day trip up there by stagecoach from, he was in southern Ohio, in North Bend, Ohio, near Cincinnati. And so he stopped halfway in Columbus, Ohio. On, on the morning of June 6, 1840, he was leaving the hotel, and there's a bunch of people standing outside. So without really planning to, he launched into what became the first presidential campaign speech in history. And he went on to Fort Meg, and he spoke to like 20,000 people there. And then he kept going all around the state, drawing crowds. And this is unbelievable. He drew crowds of up to 100,000 people. Back when the population was about a fifth of what it is now, they couldn't hear him because he had no microphone. But just to see a presidential candidate campaigning was something so unusual that people came from everywhere just to see him, even if they couldn't hear him. You can't imagine today, although we'd like to, candidates not giving speeches, but <laughs> this was the beginning of it all. Much easier to copy and paste in this day and age. Uh, they release those ones beforehand, then they go off script. It's always a little bit frustrating, but it's something about there, about him giving the speech, too. I mentioned Ronald Reagan. When he ran for governor of California, this was a similar thing where, well, I guess it was Pat Brown he was running against, and they said, well, Reagan gave a speech. He's an actor, but... He can't answer questions. He can't do it extemporaneous. And Reagan, like Harrison, was bugged by that because he's writing his own speeches out in longhand. You can see them in the compilation, Reagan in his own hand. So he said, well, I'll go give speeches. I'll give a speech for 45 minutes. Then I'll use that same amount of time to go and answer questions. And then people can't say that that it's just, oh, this old guy, this just dumb actor. There's so many of those parallels, and that's what you mentioned here about changing presidential elections forever in the subhead of the carnival campaign, even if people weren't aware that they were thinking, well, Harrison did this, and so I'm going to do what Harrison did. It opened the door to it where it didn't seem unpresidential anymore. Reagan was able to do that because of this whole 140 years or so of campaigning and how Harrison had changed it. Harrison comes out and gives that speech. And then that's a direct link to the current day when you do see candidates giving speeches. FDR is the first one who flies in and gives the acceptance speech, for instance. Those are all things you can trace back to 1840. Yeah, no question about it. And, of course, Harrison had no idea that he was setting these precedents would last forever. As a matter of fact, he worried when he started speaking that people would do this in the future. <laughs> he wasn't really sure it was a good idea, but of course, once the uh, the toothpaste was out of the tube, you couldn't put it back in. And, and the other funny thing is he was criticized because he wasn't very specific about what he was going to do as president. You know, He would just mainly talk about general philosophy and his background and so forth. So when he was asked about that, he said, well, that was on purpose because he didn't want to make promises. He said, someday somebody will campaign for president and make all kinds of promises they know they can't keep and uh, be elected president. He said, I don't want to start that kind of uh, precedent myself. We're speaking with Ron Schaefer, author of The Carnival Campaign, How the Rollicking 1840 Campaign of Tippecanoe and Tyler II Changed Presidential Elections Forever. You can check out the book and our guest online at carnivalcampaign.com or follow our guest at Ron Schaefer and the Digit One on Twitter. 
Robert W. Mary, who I'll be interviewing about his book, President McKinley, Architect of the American Century, oh. wrote of the Carnival Campaign. Ron Schaefer's delightful book is replete with anecdotes, nicknames, quips, irony, and telling descriptions of large figures engaged in a long struggle to expand American democratic participation. For those who want the full narrative of the American experience, this book is both necessary and enthralling. Ron, the word necessary jumped out at me from all that well-deserved praise. Retail politicking of the kind you describe are enjoyed by the young. It's something that's fun if you're a young person to go to a rally, to go campaign, to go door-to-door knocking. So I wanted to give you a chance to make your pitch to listeners who are maybe in their 20s, people like me who used to, I'm sure, read your columns back when I was in my 20s. You're into all this politics stuff. You're into opinion writing. You want to maybe go into a news career following your inky footsteps into media And they don't think they could possibly have anything to learn from a dusty campaign almost two centuries ago. Why should they pick up the carnival campaign to learn about working in the arena of politics? Uh, Well, I think this is a great education in how politics began. And also, I want to thank my old colleague, Bob Mary for his kind comments about the book. And good luck on his. But if you want to get involved in politics or journalism today, this is where a lot of what we see now began. Because before, as you mentioned, uh, I can't imagine how dull it would have been to cover these campaigns when these people were sitting back home and writing letters to constituents. So this was a chance to get out among the people. What was important about the Carnival campaign was that these strategists decided to take it down to the people. Instead of sort of uh, campaigning on high, they would actually go and talk to the people, which I think clearly has become uh, one of the most important parts of presidential campaigns is to try to get down to the average person instead of just talking uh, to the elite. But they did it. Voter turnout went up like 60%. And 81% of people turned out to vote, which is today we're lucky if we get 50%. So to get an idea how to generate enthusiasm among voters, this was sort of uh, the beginning of it. And for the press, it was a change in how they covered campaign. Newspapers were very important back then because up until that point, they pretty much carried the campaigns for their respective candidates. Newspapers were all very partisan so that they had one candidate or another they supported. And you want to talk about fake news, they were loaded with attacks, a lot of it made up uh, about the opponents. Uh, For example, the Democratic newspaper, The Globe, which had started by Andrew Jackson as a, sort of his personal newspaper when he was president, they claimed that Harrison had fathered illegitimate children with Indian women. It never happened, but they just totally made it up and, and printed in their papers. Since candidates did not run themselves and make these kind of charges, it was left up to these newspapers to make the charges, and actually the candidates behind the scenes kind of instructed them what to do in some cases. But to really get a feel for the start of a modern campaign that was done in a very fun way. I mean, that's probably one difference from now. It was a lot more fun then. Uh, And also on how uh, journalists had to cover a campaign. This is sort of like presidential politics 101. So, and it's, and as I say, it's a lot of fun. So I think there's a good reason to read it, but also because you'll enjoy it. 
it is an enjoyable read as well as interesting if you're a person like us who loves this kind of stuff and if you're somebody who likes to really pay attention to campaigns dig into the mechanics but also just a fun aspect of it and to realize i think for the people we're talking about running campaigns is you see campaigns often if you analyze them and if you talk to any of the people who've run presidential campaigns as you have and i've been fortunate too to talk to some of them and there are always those moments where you see a campaign trying something that's just not hitting the right mark. And I learned that or and saw that very much in the Carnival campaign, for instance, to get away from America to go to Canada. When Stephen Harper, who just lost election there, he was a prime minister for 10 years. But the initial campaign they ran against him, they just started calling him a Nazi. And, you know, that was that was their big thing was big negative campaign and making him look very sinister. And everybody in Canada just thought it was a hoot, because if you look at Stephen Harper, he looks like, you know, maybe the maybe the new dentist in town, maybe the assistant accountant. <laughs> we all know the experience warning a friend saying hey, you're dating this person and they're they're really not good for you. They're not a nice person. And they say, oh, you're crazy. They're enamored with it. When a man loves a woman, that famous old song, if she's bad, he can't see it or turn his back on his best friend if he put her down. And it's that kind of thing here in this campaign where you see them trying to say, facts like, hey, wait a minute, Harrison, his, he lives in a, in a beautiful house. I can't show you a picture of it because we don't have photography really much yet. Yet that doesn't matter to the voters. People shrug and, and not pay attention to those things because they're looking at that bigger picture. And so attacks like that that are fake, people have already have it baked in their mind that Harrison's a man of honor. He's a hero. We don't want to hear these things about him and Indian women. So even if that's true, People will dismiss it often and they'll just focus on their candidate. And as frustrating as that will be for you, if you're trying to break the story as a journalist or if you're an opposition campaign, you really learn about that here in the Carnival campaign. You, you see some great old examples that remind you that maybe with everything stripped away that we have today, all the ads, all the negative ads, all the punishing things, I think this is a great education as well as enjoyable about the human element that's at the center of all campaigns and what really matters. And that helps you be objective when you're trying to maybe plan a campaign and you're in the heat of it. No question about it. And I think, of course, the overriding irony of this whole campaign and in this book was that many of the things that the Harrison campaign created and made very successful were reactions to attacks by the Democrats. The whole log cabin thing was the result of some uh, Democrat uh, saying he was an old senile old granny who lived in a log cabin. So they went with the campaign. Becoming the first candidate to give speeches was a reaction to an attack on him for not responding to questions. So maybe one of the lessons is to be careful about uh, <laughs> yeah. how you attack because it could come back to bite you. Well, like Adley Stevenson in 1952, he was running for the presidency and he had that stodgy intellectual image, certainly compared to Eisenhower, this farm boy from Kansas, what he was very proud of. And he crosses his legs in that one interview and the journalist sees that he has a hole in the bottom of his <laughs> shoes. He's worn it so much. And he says to him, well, Mr. Stevenson, do you, I, I won't write that. And he says, no, please tell everybody about it. And if you, <laughs> and if you go on eBay, you'll see little shoe pins. They have a little pewter pin that people would wear and has the hole in the shoe. And it was the idea that, oh, that broke that image for him. And he could have given a million speeches and it would not have had the same result. It brought him down to the voters level. People couldn't say, well, here's a guy who has this long family history in politics and is just stodgy and not approachable because, look, he has a hole in his shoe just like anyone else. If they had attacked him on that, 
that would have been a tactical mistake when you look at this. If they'd said, oh, look at this guy. He has holes in his shoes. He can't even afford shoes or made fun of him in that way. He would have been able to turn it. But he had that self-awareness. And again, that traces back to this 1840 campaign, this idea of you want to be out there with the voters. You want to be one of the people and feel like an approachable guy. Definitely. And Harrison ran into a situation that was almost kind of the reverse of that. This was the first campaign. There were a lot of campaign posters and pictures around the country. And all of these pictures showed Harrison as a young man, or at least as a middle-aged man, not like the 67-year-old man he was. And at first, when he went to some of these towns to campaign, they couldn't believe how old he looked. <laughs> they were worried that this guy, maybe he was too old, but then when he got up to speak, he would speak like for two hours. He always tried to act younger than he was, which may have led partly to his downfall later. So he was always energetic. He was a very genial man. He was a good speaker. Contrary to some of the reports on him, he had a very good, dry sense of humor. At some speeches, he would ride right up to the podium on his horse, Old Whitey. So even though some people at first were kind of taken aback that he actually looked his age, he was a very energetic man, and also, he, of course, he had the background as a war hero, the son of a signer of the Declaration of Independence. There was a lot of trust in Harrison uh, as a man because of his background. So all of this goes into a campaign, but this was sort of the first campaign which a lot of these factors came together for the first time. The life expectancy back then would have probably been in the 40s. So he yeah. he really is an old, old man. He's twice as old. You think about somebody there, we would never have somebody twice the life expectancy running. They'd be, what, like 140 or something. Right. It's uh, up there by 70s. I always wonder what it was like for these people to see the candidate because you wouldn't have seen pictures of them, wouldn't have seen constant video of them, you wouldn't have heard their voice, certainly, unless you went there and heard them in person because we didn't have any of the mass media. Exactly. So that's why he drew all these crowds, because people had never seen anything like this. You know, it was like going to see the Beatles or something. It's just, I've got to see this phenomenon. But when you got there, he would give you a pretty good speech, and uh, he would uh, say, look, I'm not this old man on crutches that my opponents write about in the newspapers. This clearly had a huge impact on getting people out, not only to, to see him, but to go to the polls and vote, which, of course, is the most important part. Now I have Harrison fronting with the Beatles and took a canoe and Ringo too. That's a funny <laughs> image to think of him with a, he did have bands. So maybe the Beatles would have been, uh, I like it. <laughs> the campaign song is another one of those rhetorical devices too, right? The slogan you mentioned, tip a canoe and Tyler too. That's out of a song. That's another revolution here. People once, once hit song is out there, people just start writing them and playing them and beating the drum there to beat up on Van Buren. That's all comes together or all comes out of this campaign. Yeah, this was another feature of the campaign was all the campaign songs. There were hundreds and hundreds of campaign songs. Usually there were words written to popular songs like the Star Spangled Banner or Old Lang Syne, but they all promoted Harrison as the hero and Van Buren as the villain. One of the famous songs was about Van Buren. Part of the lyrics was, work, work, he's a little squirt. Uh, and then when they said squirt, they would spit tobacco on the ground just to <laughs> emphasize their point. These were really like what we have as television commercials today. They actually sent singers out. There was a man called Titus of Toledo who went out to sing these songs. And they would uh, hire people to jump into stagecoaches and sing Harrison's songs. <laughs> so this was actually 
part of the campaign and not just some sideshow. Like the New York City subway today, I could see that happening. Certainly a great way to get your message out. Even if people were complaining about it, you'd be talking about the candidate, which is what you want if you're running a campaign. Exactly. And they didn't stop there. They had the first marketing campaign. They had products. You know, we talk about presidents being sold uh, like toothpaste today. They really had a typical new shaving cream. Hmm. They had log cabin plates and they had uh, Harrison snuff boxes with his picture on it and water pitchers, all kinds of products that promoted the Harrison campaign sitting right in your dinner table. You had this plate that said the log cabin campaign, right? Every night when you, these are actually dinner plates. They were not souvenir plates. So they were ahead in so many different ways and marketing was another one. And when you look on eBay, you try to find things from campaigns. If you're somebody who's interested in historical articles, maybe you go to an antique store. This is when they really start to pop up. If you look them up, you find so many things there. And most of the things from any campaign before are just commemorative things, usually made in the 60s or so. But they have things like those handkerchiefs. People have kept those as mementos for all these years, handed them down to succeeding generations. There's so much stuff that they pumped out there that it brings me to chapter 21 of the Carnival Campaign. You title it Money Talks. Oh, yeah. We discussed all the liquor, the floats. I'm sure that those people weren't all jumping on stagecoaches to sing because they wanted to do it out of the support of the goodness of their heart. You had to pay all these people. So who footed the bill for all of these props that the Whigs used? Yeah, that was another thing. The, the Whigs raised a lot of money or obtained a lot of money to run uh, their candidate. The big Whig strategist was the uh, head of the New York Whig Party, a man named Thurlow Weed. He ran uh, the state of New York as pretty much as his own little playground. And he, his best friends were the uh, rich people in New York, the rich business people, uh, which he called them the merchant princes. What he would do is whatever they asked for, he would get the state legislature to pass. And he reasoned was because they only asked for good things and never asked for bad things. <laughs> and then in return, when a campaign came up, he would go and ask for money, donate money. And he said they gave willingly. So they were uh, big financers of the uh, campaign from New York. There was a scandal, may sound familiar, the Democrats charged that the, the uh, Whigs were also were getting money from a foreign country that there was foreign involvement in the campaign from the big British bankers who had investments in America, and these had dropped in value during the panic of 1837. And supposedly they wanted uh, Harrison to be elected so that he could restore some of the national bank, the national bank that Van Buren and Jackson had gotten rid of because they were investors in that bank and in state banks. So they figured Harrison uh, could restore that bank and maybe the value of their investments would go up. Now, there's no evidence that this really happened, but uh, that certainly was a, a major charge of the Democrats. And then Weed and, and his associates in Washington also used the Frank, you know, where congressmen can send out things free to the constituents through the mails. Uh, they would send out tons of pro-Harrison material using the Frank. It was probably illegal. Both sides actually did it, but the Whigs were better. And they would send out uh, things such there was a speech that Van Buren had turned the White House into a regal palace, eating with golden spoons. So they packaged up this speech and sent it all across the country. 
So there was plenty of money, mainly on the Whig side during this campaign. And the uh, Democrats, of course, charged that the Whigs were trying to buy the election. Yeah, we'd never hear that, like you said, anymore, right? No. <laughs> and by the way, if you want to talk about optics, everybody, and how you deal with that in a campaign, every time I hear Thurlow Weed or read about him, I think that guy had to be really good at politics to overcome the whole idea of weed, but <laughs> having that be his name. But then again, in the modern connotation, maybe if he ran out in Colorado or somewhere on the Northwest <laughs> Coast, maybe he, he'd be stampeded into office for having the name weed. People wouldn't take it as something that was choking the garden and you wanted to rip out of your out of your lawn, you know? So, But uh, at the time, I always think, wow, that guy must have been really good at being a boss if he was able to consolidate the empire state of all states with all those factions, guys like Van Buren trying to get their own peace. It's another interesting figure here that we meet and that we get to see in action, so to speak, in the carnival campaign. You have many titans in there, cameos by people we know by just one name. You mentioned Lincoln, but also Dickens, Poe, Whitman, Daniel Webster, the great orator, he's in there, and he helps craft Harrison's image and helps him into the White House. You describe him editing, which I thought was a great moment, Harrison's inaugural address, and he says, I, I've been busy out killing Romans because <laughs> he said he, he keep putting them in his speech, right? Harrison loved to talk about ancient Rome, and Daniel Webster's trying to help him whittle it down. What role did Webster play there and that inaugural address? You hinted at it earlier. What of all of this campaign, what of all this carnival atmosphere, what of all this breaking the rules and the insults that Harrison took to heart impacted his ultimate catching that cold and passing away after a month? Well, Webster was one of the surrogate speakers for Harrison. Harrison was, of course, campaigning as this plain man living in a log cabin, and Webster was a pretty wealthy, fancy dresser wearing, you know, these silk suits and everything. But during the campaign, he wore like this farmer hat <laughs> and these old clothes. And he talked about how his father had been born in a log cabin. And every year he takes his children to this log cabin to pay respects to his father. You know, it wasn't a dry eye in the house when he got done. <laughs> but this was nothing like what he really was. But he became an important part of the campaign. And in fact, when Harrison was elected, he made Webster his secretary of state. But finally, of course, Harrison does win the election. He arrives in Washington. It was a long trip from Ohio. In those days, the inauguration was in March, first week in March. Harrison arrives on his 68th birthday in Washington by train. He's the first president-elect to arrive in Washington by train. It was a snowy day, and the train was you know, a couple miles from the White House. The train station even then was up at the Capitol. He arrives, it's snowing, and they have this carriage for him to ride, and he says, no, no, I'm going to walk. So he's always wanting to show that he's, uh, even though he's now 68, he's a young and vital man. So he marches through the snow and is greeted by the mayor of the city, and he moves into the hotel, Van Buren, he goes have dinner with Van Buren, so he's this strong, vital guy, and he had a lot of time before the inauguration, so he goes back home to Berkeley Plantation near Richmond, between Richmond and Williamsburg, and while he's there, he writes his uh, inauguration speech, uh, longhand on paper, of course, and he goes back home and he rehearses while he's riding his horse in Rock Creek Park, so he's all ready for the, for the big day, and he shows it to Webster, who is staying at the same boarding house as he is, and as you mentioned Harrison had this thing for uh, Roman history, 
So Webster said he was busy killing all these Roman heroes. <laughs> well, he didn't kill enough of them. I can tell you that. Yeah, I guess not. <laughs> so it comes the big day, and they have this uh, big parade up Pennsylvania Avenue. It's the first official inauguration parade in history. It's like a, a campaign parade, and they have the log cabins on wheels and all that stuff. Uh, and again, they bring in this uh, carriage for Harrison and Tyler to ride up to Capitol Hill. But Harrison says, no, 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 I'm going to ride my horse. And it's a cold and windy day. It's not raining, but it's a cold and windy day. And Harrison rides old Whitey up Pennsylvania Avenue, and he keeps doffing his hat to the crowd as he gets up there. So finally they get up for the, uh, for the inauguration. The wind is blowing like crazy. I have a quote from a journalist who says he was sitting next to Harrison. He was freezing. Uh, Harrison is sitting there. He doesn't have a coat or a hat on. Again, he wants to look young. So he finally gets up to speak, and he goes on and on and on. He's talking about Roman heroes. He goes on for an hour and 45 minutes. It is still the longest presidential inauguration speech in history. <laughs> It wasn't raining, but it was cold and windy, but he was fine after that. He went to three inaugural balls that night. He moved into the White House, and he kept his habits from home. He got up early every morning. He took a walk through town. There was no Secret Service at the time. And one day he was out, and he got caught in a sudden rainstorm. And he rushed back to the White House, but he didn't change his clothes. Then for one reason or another, I mean, his body is frail from all these campaigning and so forth. He picked up some germs. He gets sick. He gets a cold. They call the doctor. Doctor says he's okay. Next night, it gets worse. The doctor comes back and he says, oh no, they have, he has pneumonia. He continues to get worse. They bring in teams of doctors. They do bloodletting. They cup him, which means they try to put blisters on his body to kind of increase the blood flow. He has diarrhea, but then they give him laxatives. They give him an old Indian remedy involving snakeweed. They pretty much beat up his old body till finally he dies on April 4th, just one month after taking office. He is the first president uh, to die in office. So the myth is that he gave the longest speech, presidential inaugural speech in history in the rain and caught a cold and died. It's a little more complicated than that, but in the end, he did become the first president to die in office, and nobody knew what to do. And gosh, Andrew Jackson was happy. Uh, yes, actually, Jackson uh, Jackson was kind of jumping with joy. It's a shocking thing. He was saying uh, that to him, this was providence uh, coming in to say that saving the democracy of the United States, which he thought was in deep peril. He knew that Tyler was not really a Whig and that he probably would not follow through on what Harrison did. So actually, yes, Jackson really was uh, pretty happy and even said so. Uh, when uh, Harrison died. Yeah, it was in his bio. You read it and you read what Jackson says at the time. And you say, my gosh, <laughs> when people pine for a happier, kinder, more civil time between <laughs> presidents and their successors or candidates, you say, yeah, well, Jackson was, as you said, I didn't want to say it, but since you did, <laughs> tap dancing, it sounds like if he was able to and saying, this is just what had to happen. And now Tyler's in, he was just so happy. It's it's really at all the horrible things that you look at or shocking things that Jackson does. And then you see this, you say, wow, he takes it up yet another notch and is does something that makes you sit back even more and say, gosh, this guy. <laughs> 
Well, uh, you've given me a reason to wrap this up because it's a warning against speaking too long. Let me close with one fun question in the spirit of the book. And that is, since you didn't have video, since you didn't have audio when you were researching the carnival campaign, if you could hop in our time machine and travel back to any one of these outrageous cider rolling campaign events or speeches, which one would you choose? And what would you hope to experience that you simply couldn't through the written word and diaries? You know, I think the one I would like to do would be to go back to Columbus, Ohio, which happens to be my hometown, on June 6, 1840, when Harrison gave that very first speech. I would like to be one of those people standing outside on the, the hotel where this presidential candidate comes in. First of all, I'm sure I would have never seen a presidential candidate before, so that would have been very exciting and probably the only reason I was there. But then... He starts giving a speech, and I thought, oh my gosh, you know, this, this has never happened before. He's actually talking about running for president. And to me, this would be, if I was around at that time, something I had, would never have expected to see in my entire life. And here he was right in front of me giving this speech. And the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> Well, Ronald G. Schaefer, author of The Carnival Campaign, thank you for joining me today, giving me a chance to travel back to this campaign as much as is possible in a well-written history book to experience that upside-down campaign of 1840. As I'm sure listeners can tell, I enjoy talking about this period, about these figures that tend to get overlooked in the flashy candidates who have this fancy video that everybody loves so much today, but they were real people, real things happen. I hope people will pick up the book and get to know Harrison as more than a 30-day president, more than just a trivial pursuit answer, he and Tyler as the first accidental replacement president. It's a fun read. Anybody who wonders how we got to our modern battles for the White House will do really well. We'll get a lot of benefit here out of reading the Carnival campaign, and it's just plain fun, so all the best of luck with the book. Well, thank you very much, and uh, thanks for having me. And I'll just close with one word. Huzzah! <laughs> Huzzah, indeed. Again, the book is The Carnival Campaign. How the rollicking 1840 campaign of Tippecanoe and Tyler II changed presidential elections forever. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there. Or even navigate through the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, we take it Amazon, and Amazon.com gives us a small portion of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just those few extra taps of your finger, you can help keep the flux capacitor on the old time machine humming like usual. My thanks to Ron Schaefer for joining us and for helping us catch the excitement from William Henry Harrison's rollicking charge to the White House. Remember to visit CarnivalCampaign.com and follow Ron Schaefer and the Digit One on Twitter. And while you're online, check us out at History Dean on Twitter or drop us a like at facebook.com slash historyauthor. I also have to thank Feather S. Foster for pointing Ron Schaefer my way. Dig into our archives to hear my chat about Feather's book 
Mary Lincoln's flannel pajamas, and other stories of the First Lady's Closet. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Huzzah!